Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. One, tonight I have simply entitled the message Jesus because that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing to the Colossians. And because that letter has been preserved through the centuries, it tells me that God wants Jesus emphasized to every Christian, every church, through the ages. So far in our study through Colossians, and we're going into more detail uh, in Colossians than we did in Revelation. It was a big bird's eye view. This is, we're, we're getting a little bit closer. It's not a, necessarily a verse-by-verse study, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively short book of the Bible, so that kind of gives us a little more opportunity to get a little more in-depth. So far in, in chapter 1, we've seen Paul stress three things. In verses 1 through 8, and we covered this, Paul stresses what it means to be redeemed. In verses 9 through 11, Paul stresses uh, the will of God in the lives of Christians. In verses 12 through 15, Paul stresses the giving of thanks. And then in verses uh, 16 through 23, which we're looking at tonight, Paul is stressing who Christ is. There was great debate back then as to who Christ was. There were a group of people that existed back then that were called Gnostics. And they were raising all sorts of questions about Jesus It was debated early on in the infancy of the church as to who Christ was and different people, different philosophies, had different ideas. You know, I preached a message a good while back, Brother Tom mentioned it the other day, that uh, when it comes to, to Jesus Christ, really you only have three options, okay? You're given three options. He is either a liar, in other words, what he said he knew wasn't true, or he's either a lunatic, a lunatic, what he said wasn't true, but he believed it. Or he is Lord, what he said was indeed true. You don't have any other options. Some people today in our politically correct world try to say, well, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. No, you don't have that option based on what he said. He was either a liar, which of course he was not. Or he was a lunatic, which of course he was not. Or he was just who he said he was. He was Lord. You know, it's amazing that we live in a day and age of mega churches, but we have mega ignorance too. Mega ignorance. I mean, just look at, there's been a lot of surveys come out lately about what Christians, what evangelicals believe. And folks, it is all over the map. We're nowhere to being as orthodox as we were just 25, 30 50 years ago. Um, Talking about surveys and what have you, let me just share this with you. I'll just read it to you. Last year, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life published a major study on religious affiliation, beliefs, and practices in the United States. One of the significant findings was that 70% of all Americans believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Okay, 70%. If you go out into our community, 
Seven out of ten households are going to believe that there's a bunch of different ways to go to heaven. Okay? And then it says, including 65% of all self-identifying Christians. 65% of Christians believe there's multiple ways. You know, Hindus, yeah, they, they can end up in heaven. You know, uh, Islamists, yeah, they can end up in heaven. He says, perhaps the most surprising finding was that 56% of all evangelical Christians believe there are many paths other than faith in Christ to God and eternal life. You know, we live in this postmodern era where people, this is part of this liberal mindset, they're good with contradictions. I would ask these people, well, how do you know about Jesus in the first place? Well, the Bible. Okay, that's, you know, these, these compromising evangelicals. Well, doesn't that same Bible say in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me? And yet they'll hear that and say, yeah, but I just feel, and that's where liberals, again, most of what they do is based on feelings. This one writer said, the average liberal is stuck in kindergarten. Think about it. That describes, that describes, anyway. Don't get me chasing rabbits. I can't do that. The identity of Christ has been debated ever since Christ walked the face of the earth. In fact, Jesus acknowledged that he was being debated. Who who was he? What did people believe? Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, now this is, you know, when he's alive. Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some, Elias. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So understand, this whole idea of who Jesus is being debated today, was being debated back then when Jesus asked, who do they say that I am? He knew that there's lots of different opinions floating around. Folks, there's not a more important question in the world that we get right than knowing who is Jesus. There's nothing more critical to you, your family, your life on this earth, and your life in eternity. There's no more critical question than this. And, and look, we, we, can't, we can't go to other inspired writings to find out, and that's, you know, in parentheses, we can't go to other inspired writings, whether it's writings of, of, of the Mormon church or, or Ellen G. White. We, you know, th- those are extra biblical writings. They're, out, they're outside the Bible. The, the, the Bible is God's final word to us. But yet people will form their opinion about Jesus by, well, what does the Book of Mormon say? Th- there's no additional revelation. You know, in some Pentecostal church, somebody has a vision, and this is what they, you know, my vision says this is about Jesus. No, we've got it here. It's right here, okay? No certain groups have a special link to to, to God and what, who Jesus is. I mean, the, the, the Catholic Church, you know, they, seen, they have said for centuries that they are the true church and every other church is a false church. And, you know, through the Pope, through the College of Cardinals, they have this special connection and they can make it up as they go. And that's a lot of what they do. 
What we know about Jesus, folks, where you can count on with certainty that it is accurate, we know from the Bible, exclusively from the Bible. And in Colossians, Paul tells us three fantastic, important truths about Jesus. Now, people then were questioning who Jesus was. In Colossians chapter 1, verse number 23, he says, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Why did Paul write that under the inspiration of Scripture? Because they were being moved away from the hope of the gospel. The word of God always has to be contended for. There, there is a, a constant onslaught of people who question the Bible, who want to add to the Bible, who want to take away from the Bible. And you've got to make up your mind as a Christian, do you believe this book is the word of God or not? And do you contend that it is God's final authority and it is total and complete or not? You've got to make that up for yourself. And let me tell you, no other, no other view will work. No other view is even logical. The only thing we can trust is God and his word. And folks, I want to stress this as we get going tonight, and I've stressed this to several people here lately. You've got to decide to take your faith seriously. You have to decide. Not your parents, not your grandparents, not trying to influence your children, although we want to influence them, but you've got to take your faith seriously. And it's going to be tested. Particularly in the day, I never thought in my lifetime I would see what's going on in the world around us, but it is going on. Now, it doesn't shake my faith. I worry about other people's faith. I know what I believe, and I know what I'm going to go to the grave believing. But I worry about others because I see people, for example, changing churches and going to churches that are doctrinally totally different. And that tells me, you don't get it. You know, maybe I failed somebody in some cases. But, you know, you got to know what you believe and then contend for it. So Paul here is laying out three foundational truths about Christ. And every one of these truths need to be at the core of who you are with what you believe. Number one in our passage tonight from Colossians. Paul teaches that the man Jesus is the creator of of all things. Does that not put him in a league all his own? He says, beginning in verse number 16, here's Paul telling us about Jesus. I mean, folks, this is mountaintop. This is, this is deep. This, this is high. This is, this is as good as it gets. This isn't kindergarten. For by him, Paul tells these Colossians who were being tempted to fall away from the gospel, he tells them, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Man, that covers it all. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. If you believe that, that should dominate your life from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night. It should dominate every aspect of your life if you believe that. And if it doesn't dominate your life, it may call into question, do you sincerely, really 
believe that he is the creator of all things. That verse tells us three, or those verses tell us three things. It says there all things were created by him. It says all things were created for him. And all things consist or are sustained by him. That's what Paul was emphasizing to them. And through the miracle of preservation of God's word, that's what he's telling my old Baptist church tonight. An understanding and an appreciation of this fact places you in a position to experience life to the fullest. You cannot, you know, you get, we all get one shot at this life. I don't want to waste it. I want to experience it to the fullest. I cannot experience this life as it was intended by God without me understanding and appreciating the fact that all things were created by him. All things were created for him. All things consist by him. We need to have that understanding. And it should dominate our life more than anything else, more than our feelings, more than the culture. I like this quote. This gives me, this, this gives me uh, a comfort. A God wise enough to create me and a world I live in is wise enough to watch out for me. So it's important that we understand what Paul told those Colossians that God is the creator of everything. We are here by his divine will. Other than his divine will, we don't exist. So for us to act independent, for us to do our own thing, for us to, you know, question this and go by our feelings or go by what's cool, you are not going to live life to the fullest that God intended for you on this earth. So number one, the man Jesus is the creator of all things. The second thing he tells these people, the man Jesus is head of the church. Jesus, the head of the church. He goes on to say next in verse number 18, Colossians 1, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Again, he tells us three very important truths here about Jesus being the head of the church. He says, first of all, that indeed he is the head of the church. He is to be preeminent in the church. I mean, the church should focus on him. That's what we're doing tonight. And he is all sufficient for the task. All fullness dwells in him. That means he is sufficient to be the head of the church. And it's important for us to understand this truth and appreciate this truth because it puts you in a position to understand the true worth and the value of the church. And that's important because the church is comprised of people. It really isn't the building. We know that. It's the people. But guess what? While we're saved, we're still sinners. And if we just focus on the fact of Brother so-and-so did this, and Mrs. so-and-so did that, and preacher did this, and so-and-so. If we just focus on that, we could get easily frustrated. But we got to understand that this is bigger than us and our little feelings. 
Again, let me, let me go back and read it to you. It says, and he is the head. Can, can you back it up? She can do anything up there. And he is the head of the body, the church, Christ. We may get frustrated with each other, but who's at the top of the chain of command? Who, who's the king of the hill? He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. He's the head of the church. He's to be preeminent in the church. He is all sufficient for the task. And if we don't understand that, we will not understand the true worth and the value of this organization. He is the head. So we should appreciate it. We should understand that in, in, in spite of our frailties and our messing it up. I'm, I'm going to read you this, a little, a little history. Because you say, well, uh, yeah, it, it's a given that Jesus is the head of the church, preacher. You're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. We know that. Hadn't always been the case. John Huss was and is well known and loved by many who know Reformation history. He was a Bohemian, and he was a pre-Reformation reformer. He was actually born to pe- uh, peasant parents in Husseneck, uh, now modern Croatia. At 20 years of age, he shortened his name to Hus, which means the goose. That nickname struck. Now, this is kind of dark humor here. So firmly did it stick that 100 years or so later, Martin Luther referred to Hus as his martyrdom, that the goose had been cooked. He was burned at the stake. I mean, apparently Martin Luther had a dark sense of humor. The day of his execution was actually July 6, 1415. He was taken to the cathedral in Prague. Now, this is disturbing. Isn't it horrible to think of uh, ISIS burning people at the stake? You know, the Catholic Church used to do that. Folks, read up on your history. I'm not saying all Catholics are wicked and terrible, but the, the, during this time period, it, it was horrible. What they, they were burning people at the stake for what they believed. It says he was taken to the cathedral in Prague. He was dressed in his priestly clothing, and then when he arrived in public view, he was stripped of all his priestly garments, one garment at a time. He was then tied to the stake, at which point his biographer uh, say he prayed, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. Have mercy on my enemies. He was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed him. You say, well, what? why? Okay. His executioners were so desirous of ridding the earth of every bit of this man that they actually scooped up his ashes and tossed them into the lake so that nothing of John Hess would ever remain. Those who revered him, however, collected bits of dirt on the spot where he died and took them back to Bohemia for a memorial. The most important treatise or writing that Hus ever wrote is called The Church. It was read completely in public in Prague, and it contained radical views. One, that the church was made up of all the believers of all ages. During the time of Wycliffe and Huss, the official position of the church was that the true church consisted only of the pope, the cardinals, the bishops, and the priests, and that common lay people were not real members, but only commune with the true church as they receive communion. Also, in this same writing on the church, he said that the authority of the Bible is higher than than the authority of the church. 
This, by the way, was another radical idea in his day and an idea that he drew from Wycliffe. It's interesting that his words regarding the authority of Scripture were later repeated almost verbatim by Martin Luther. But he was executed primarily because he said that Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. And for that, he was burned at the stake. He also said, which didn't help, that the reprehensible lives of disqualified men made them unfit for positions of authority in ministry, and he took a swipe at their whole system. And then lastly, it's on the screen behind me, Huss believed Jesus was the head of the church and that reprobate men were disqualified from any role of leadership whatsoever. That was in the 1400s, that certain courageous men had to stand up for truth. That Christ is head of the church. And there were others that didn't like it. But Paul was facing that in the church at Colossae that it was questionable. So he, he spells it out for them in no uncertain terms that Christ, that Jesus was the head of the church. And then lastly, number three, we're done. He tells them that the man Jesus reconciled God and man by the way of the cross. And having made peace, verse number 20, through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and that you uh, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Better words, more encouraging words have never been spoken. He says three things in those verses. Number one, his reconciliation has made us holy. Let's quote Warren Wearsby. The word holy is closely associated to the word saint. Both of these words express the idea of being set apart, being devoted to God. Through him reconciling us through his death on the cross, we have been made holy. We have been set aside to God. Secondly, in those verses, his reconciliation has made us unblameable. Again, if we can quote Wearsby. Unblameable means without blemish. The word was applied to the temple sacrifices, which had to be without blemish. It is amazing that God looks at his children and sees no blemish on them through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, in that passage, we're told that his reconciliation has made us unreprovable in his sight. Unreprovable means free from accusation. Once we have been reconciled to God... No charges can be brought against us. I don't have it on the screen, but one writer said, In Christ alone and his payment of the penalty for our sins upon the cross, we find reconciliation to God and ultimate meaning and purpose. And then again at the end. We've read this at the beginning, but it's really to be read here at the end. We get down now to verse number 23. He's he's told us about Jesus being... Uh, the, the Redeemer. He's told us about Jesus being the head of the church, Jesus being the creator of all things. I mean, there are no bigger concepts for any mind to conceive of than what we've read tonight. I mean, you should go home with your heart overflowing, your mind overflowing, while people are at home watching Wheel of Fortune or whatever. I mean, we are thinking thoughts that are the loftiest, most noble, most life-changing thoughts that, that people can think. 
Then when he comes to the end, he kind of explains why he is emphasizing Jesus. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Those folks were tempted to compromise. Those folks back then were tempted, well, do we really want to, we're going to take a lot of heat. I mean, we're going to be known as, you know, phobic and and, uh, diabolical and, you know, uh, bigoted and what have you. Because, I mean, we're coming across as uncompromising and we're not going to be liked. And Paul knew that. And that's why I told him, consider who Jesus is. And we'll close with this. Quote C.H. Spurgeon. He preached on this to his church, this very passage. And he said the following, and I quote, Oh, how many there are that are never settled. The tree which should be transplanted every week would soon die. He's talking about people that are wishy-washy in their faith. Well, I can go to this church, but this church has better music. Well, it's different doctrinally. Well, I like the music. Or I'm going to go, now I'm going to change, now I'm going to go to this church because, man, that's where everybody's flocking to right now. Well, the doctrine is different, yeah, but, you know, I I can make a lot more contacts there. That's how shallow so many of us Christians have become. So, such was the case when Spurgeon was preaching because he says, how many there are that are never settled? And then he illustrates. The tree which should be transplanted every week would soon die. You can't plant a, transplant a tree every week or it's going to die. In other words, he's saying a transplanted Christian, you know, being transplanted often, same is going to happen. He says, nay, if it were moved, no matter how skillfully, once every year, no gardener would expect fruit from it. How many Christians there be that are transplanting themselves constantly, even as to their doctrinal sentiments? People really don't change. He was dealing with it back then. He says, he he is so articulate. He goes on to say, there be some who believe according to the last speaker. And there be others who do not know what they do believe, but they believe almost anything that is told them. That they believe whatever the last speaker told them to believe. And that is such, you know, Spurgeon is saying it, it cannot be that way. That's why I said a while ago, we've got to take our faith seriously. It cannot be uh, shallow. Then he goes on to say, men have come to believe that it does not matter what they do believe. Who are like the weathercock upon the steeple? They will turn just as the wind blows. And then I have his final words on the screen behind us. He quotes George Whitfield. He says, as good Mr. Whitfield said... You might as well measure the moon for a suit of clothes as tell their doctrinal sentiments, for they are ever-changing. Now, I pray that this may be taken away from any of you, if this be your weakness, and that you may be settled. Superficial things are unimportant. Minor grievances and disputes, they need to be ironed out. But what should drive you to this church 
is your core doctrinal beliefs. Because that is at, that is who you are. And if, if, if your choice of churches is music or facilities without any regard to doctrinal beliefs, that doesn't speak well for you and it certainly doesn't help the cause of Christ. What is Paul? Let me, let me finish with this. What is Paul stressing here? Paul is stressing doctrinal concerns. This is who Jesus is. And you just heard me a while ago say something like 65% of evangelicals do not believe. They'll tell you they're Christians and they will go to their kumbaya services and, you know, they'll, they'll be there and they'll talk the talk and then you start nailing them down on doctrine, which is all that really matters when it's all said and done. They're all over the place. Oh, yeah, we had a great Bible study over at Susie's house. Yeah. Okay, uh, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Well, no. People would, look, people would think we're judgmental. We're not to judge. We are to be discerning, folks. And that, I could go back into liberalism now. Discernment is critical. Is absolutely, it is the missing ingredient in most preaching and in most churches today because everybody just wants to be liked. Everybody, I want to be liked. But at the core is what do we believe doctrinally? And we can, and to the degree that we don't give up on doctrine or compromise doctrine, to that degree, guess what? And we'll end on a positive note. To the degree we stay true to pure doctrine, our light is going to shine all the more and all the brighter. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and that you were encouraged by God's Word. If you have any questions about Mile Baptist Church, please contact us anytime. You can find contact information on our website at myobaptistchurch.com. Thanks for listening.